0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have Gills Club scientist Hannah Med. Hannah is a conservation scientist with a strong focus on shark and ray conservation. She founded the American Shark Conservancy, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the conservation and sustainable management of elasmobranchs through science and outreach, increasing science literacy, and engaging the public in solution based actions. Part of Hannah's research is working with the silky shark, and this is a shark that is really not talked about a lot when we are looking at the broader scope of shark research. So I wanted to give it a little bit of a shout out in a silky shark's time to shine. The silky shark gets its name for, well, the silky look of its skin. The reason why the silky shark has this silky skin is because of their dermal denticles. Now, if you listened to a few episodes ago with Dr. Molly Gabler-Smith, she researches dermal denticles on sharks, which is their special type of scales that all species of sharks have. So they definitely have a smoother scale and because they are densely packed together, hence giving them this silky shark name. It does have a long and slender body, and they are usually abundant in the pelagic zone, which is the open water away from the shore and from the surface. Scientists assume that they are feeding on schooling fish, and they favor tuna. And they are intensely sensitive to sounds, possibly to follow the sounds of other animals feeding around them, which is pretty cool. Without further ado, let's get into our interview with Hannah to learn all about her research and her work with the American Shark Conservancy. Today, we have Hannah Med. So I want to say welcome. I feel like I have not seen you or talked to you for forever. We used to have our yearly meetings at Tortuga Music Festival when we always would booth beside each other for the three-day concert slash outreach event. So it's nice to be able to talk to you again.
1: Yeah, no, same. It's been it's been a little while, but those were always really fun to get to hang out with people from different parts of the country.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely an event that we always look forward to, to go to every year. Um, I don't know about you. Unfortunately, we cannot go this year, but um, we definitely want to get back into the swing of things in 2022. <laughs>
1: Yep. Same, same on our side. We're, we're giving, we're, we're not going this year, but, um, yep. We're hoping for another return visit in 2022.
0: Perfect. So hopefully they will put us beside each other as they yeah. usually do.
1: actually <laughs> Like all the shark people being in one area. I think it makes for yeah. a really fun weekend.
0: Yes. Um, So for anyone that is listening right now and you're probably thinking, what in the heck are these two women talking about right now? So Tortuga Music Festival is a three day long music festival in Fort Lauderdale, Florida where then they work with a nonprofit called Rock the Ocean, where they bring in ocean conservation groups, either if it's sharks like us or with sea turtles or coral reef re- restoration, and they put them all in this group called Conservation Village. And then we are able to network and be able to talk to other people throughout the country to see what outreach and education initiatives that we're doing or like me and Hannah, we like to catch up. <laughs> yep, Exactly. <laughs> so to kick off the interview, um, So if you want to just to introduce yourself, explain your research what you do?
1: Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you so much for you know inviting me to come and talk. I really do. I love podcasts. I don't know how we survived without them. Um, I do a lot of long driving. So I find that these podcasts keep, uh, you know, a 16-hour drive is so much more manageable when I have fun podcasts to listen to. So thank you so much for, you know, inviting us to be able to talk about our work. And I just, we love the Gills Club, the whole concept of the project and program is just awesome. I wish there was one around when I was a little kid because mm-hmm. everyone thought I was crazy for wanting to study sharks. So I'm super proud to be involved. Yeah. My name is Hannah and I'm the founder and lead scientist at the American Shark Conservancy. We're an independent nonprofit research group in South Florida So our our research kind of focuses on a couple of different things. Um, Our two main focuses are just looking at long-term monitoring projects, uh, looking at the ecology of our coastal and pelagic, which are those open ocean sharks off the coast of Florida. They're kind of a movement abundance of different species like lemons and sandbars and silky sharks. And then another main focus is on recreational fishing for sharks, kind of a fishery that has not really been closely monitored. And we found a lot of data gaps that we could help fill with our research. So kind of two different aspects that we focus on, but it's funny because it kind of falls into one category, which is this interface of where like humans and and sharks kind of come together, whether you're a diver or a fisherman. So that seemed to be a theme that grew out of our programs the last couple of years.
0: Which is absolutely just a really cool way to be able to blend research and I want to say it's essentially human interaction between the two but being able yeah. to you know learn about those gaps and to be able to hopefully close them and learn more about them than as you and the American Shark Conservancy is continuing to do their research. So um, going off of that so I know you work with an array of sharks um, throughout the different projects that you do so you can just kind of deep dive into some of those?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This year, primarily, we focused a lot on lemon sharks. Our long-term diver survey had kind of picked up, you know, we're asking the normal questions like, you know, how long do these animals hang out on our coastline? Who hangs out with who? One of the big things we kind of picked up on as like a side note, a side observation was some skin abnormalities, for lack of better description, uh, some changes to some of the skin that we've seen over the past couple of years. And that's kind of the importance of these long-term monitoring projects is that you get to see changes that may happen over time scales like a year or two years or five years. So we've seen some uh, lemon sharks crop up with these kind of odd skin abnormalities, sort of a faded edge to the fins, some of them is, seems to be correlated with like a little fin deformation. So it's, it's of course caused us to ask more questions than we have answers for. So we've gone down this deep rabbit hole of, you know, <laughs> you know, skin conditions and in, in different shark species and what does that mean and what may be causing it. But that's been like kind of a nice little, like, surprise it doesn't seem to be uh, causing like major fitness issues. Like where I don't think it's going to be like impacting the population, but it is interesting seeing the ties or maybe a tie to water quality, which then of course is something that, you know, can be mitigated by us. If, if the water quality is poor, that's something that we could maybe, you know, try to make better. So the lemon sharks have been a, a big focus and, they're pretty fun to be in the water with and they, they're just, they just have really uh, fun person. I, I think they have fun personalities. Um, fishermen hate them for the most <laughs> part, which is so funny. Divers love them and fishermen don't like them at all, to- <laughs> but they're what, they're definitely one of my favorites and another species would be the silky sharks as well. So we're looking at parasites and have helped out a PhD student Brendan Talwar from um, FSU, putting out some satellite tags on silky shark, uh, silky sharks here to see where they move about, and great hammerheads as well as another main focus species of ours to see in the recreational fishery as as those sharks swim off from being released. Thankfully, a lot of anglers do practice catch and release, but the question remains do the animals survive once they do swim off and so there's evidence to say that some of them may swim off safely um and then some of them may swim off and and actually die from the physiological effects of of the fishing event so that's we've been focused really on great hammerheads for last three years which has been really very very interesting
0: I think the first question I have out of all of that is looking at those parasites that you um, were talking about that you are helping to collect and study. And that, that's always a question that I get if I do a school program and we talk about how you can look at parasites to learn more about a shark and see if it is a negative or a, or just a mutual relationship. So what types of things you're learning about if you have learned anything yet about them.
1: Yeah, so in the, for the silky sharks, we've noticed the copepods. So it's, again, kind of a, the goal of these long-term monitoring projects to see whether or not as well their parasite load changes or if the parasite, the type of parasite they have, which we sometimes call like the assemblage, to see if that changes as well. And some of those things can tell us about where the shark has come from or what it's eating. Hmm. So it does actually help. It's kind of a non-invasive way that we can maybe start to answer some of those questions. We we don't have answers yet because it's really just kind of kicked off this year. One of the worst parts, I will say, I'm not a fan of leeches and <laughs> sandbar sharks here have leeches and the dive masters are able, have been able to sample a few. And then they hand me this little baggie with a marine leech in it. And it's like my worst nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> But it's really important, and I know that, and we're identifying them, and we're counting and doing all that good diligence, but they're, they're, they creep me out a little bit.
0: That's okay. I think that you are you, – you can be you can be allowed to be creeped out by that because that does not sound like okay, a fun thing. <laughs> Wait, but, <laughs> thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I mean, I, I I wouldn't like that either. But I think no. it's so in- in- interesting just by looking at a cocoa pod, you can see where that shark came from, like how – and again, like how?
1: <laughs> yeah. So some areas you, it's, it's, it's a key to collaborate with other researchers. So mm-hmm. other researchers are doing work in say Brazil, um, or even in Central America, where we think these sharks move around to, or Bahamas, um, you know, if they can identify the same type of copepod, um, there's, we're looking into some ways of, identify maybe from some signatures on those copepods, what kind of environments that copo- copepod came from. And then I think our bigger question um, is also like just the load and whether or not it affects the the sharks negatively. Definitely doesn't seem to. We see a lot of large females in the summer with, you know, over 50 copepods kind of spaced out. They look like they're just like peppered with them and they all seem to be in good health and their behavior seems fine just from an observational side. But it's a, it's kind of the start of a big, bigger question. So I'll, I'll definitely share updates as we go along.
0: Absolutely. I would love to hear any of those updates that you do learn along yeah. the way. That looking back and kind of going into some of the hammerhead questions that I was thinking about, I know in past research, you have helped and worked with fishermen that are fishing them right from the beach. And I'm sure that is a big challenge that you can face as just not even just a fisherman, but then a scientist as well. I mean, that's a really big fish that you are trying to fish then up onto the beach. So if you can talk about that process and how then that is benefiting toward the research then.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I never wanted to be a shark fisher person. Um, I was not, it's not, it's just not how I would want to spend my time. But when we've realized that the data are scarce based, you know, uh, answering questions about, you know, whether or not these animals um, survive and who's fishing and where they're fishing and how they're fishing. Like there just wasn't a lot of information. So my um, co-PI Jill Brooks, we got right into the weeds and luckily she has a great British accent and she was able to just charm the fishermen immediately and they were like, yeah, you can come help us and tag tag any sharks that we catch. And it actually went way smoother than I thought it was going to be. Sometimes, you know, people who are fishing, whether it's commercial or recreational, they're very wary of scientists. And especially because I've done a lot of advocacy stuff. I mean, I think they were concerned, you know, that maybe I was, you know, going to look poorly on their activity. But really, we, you know, just showed that we were neutral scientists there to gather the data. So that opened the door to work. I mean, we've worked now with 60 anglers, we've tagged 16 sharks and it is not easy for a lot of different (laughs) reasons, a lot of different reasons. It's usually a fishery that takes place at night. Mm -hmm. Um, The catch rate is very low. So you end up spending a lot of time sitting on a blow up chair on the beach, which sounds great. Um, But when you're on like night number 20, um, Mm -hmm. sometimes you just want to go to bed (laughs) in your own house and you're just waiting for a reel to go off. So when it does go off, every, you know, the anglers all jump up, they run to the rod and the reel. So previously they would have kayaked out. They leave the rod and reel on the beach. They kayak a big chunk of bait out and kind of drop it about 200 to 300 meters offshore. And then when that reel goes off, um, everyone jumps and runs to the reel. So we let them do whatever it is that they're going to do just a normal fishing event and then we try not to get in their way and we put a short term satellite tag on in the waves um, at night <laughs> on a big animal and trying not to delay the release in any way um, so that our information is going to represent exactly how a recreational fishing event would be. So yeah, it can it can be there's sand everywhere, and then you're usually soaking wet after that. So if it's a little bit chilly, that can be kind of rough for the rest of the night. We've learned to pack a couple of different changes of clothes too. So <laughs> yeah, it it can be um, very stressful, just like all field work can be. But it's truly something that like we're contributing for the first time to to this first ever um, stock assessment for hammerheads with these data. So I couldn't be more proud of the project and. All those nights are definitely worth it.
0: There's a there's a lot to unpack there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Uh one, it's really great to see that there can be this relationship between scientists and fishermen. I know that's a lot of people that are maybe have a step back from this type of role that might think that it could be the quite opposite where it's, you know, that butting heads, but really showing that like these collaborations can truly happen and then can truly then benefit then the overall of the species there as well. So then it, one, helps the ecosystem, but then two, then is able then for them to be able to continue on with that hobby as well, then be able then to learn more about that species.
1: Yeah, and I would just also say that like having them involved in the, you know, we ask their questions we ask them questions, um, getting them involved, being super transparent. The other big advantage is no matter what the outcomes are, they kind of buy in to the, to the results there. There's so much more trust there, um, which is ultimately what we want. We want everyone to trust the results of the science. So um, that's kind of a benefit of, of creating those relationships as well in the long term.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think then, then That's not even then just benefiting that one person that you're working with, but, you know, like they have friends that are probably fishing or they have friends that are interested in what they do. And then it's just like it trickles down and spreads the word and then it just helps perpetuate then that real truth then about these types of collaborations as well. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that is
1: definitely that's we've seen that actually play out over the past year and a half or so, and it's been really, really gratifying to see. (laughs)
0: Um, if you're working with a hammerhead or a silky shark or a lemon shark, was there something that maybe that um, you didn't like expect um, when you were working with them or even if it wasn't even with those types of species or something else that you have worked in the past? I know you've had a very like extensive background. So is there anything that like comes right off the bat that you're like, I would have never expected that?
1: I have been extremely lucky. Um, I, you know, part of my family has Has like a production company. So we get to like back, like piggyback on some of their adventures. So I've had the chance to be in and around and work on a couple of different species, which is, I'm, you know, very grateful for those opportunities. And yeah, I I would say having worked only on lemon sharks first with the Bimini Shark Lab had um, a project in Jupiter, Florida. So that's kind of when I got back from grad school. In South Africa, I went to um, help them out there. So for five or six years, I helped them out. They're basically targeting lemon sharks to tag them um, with acoustic transmitters. And then we kind of shifted to hammerheads in the later years. But those first little while with the lemon sharks, I mean, and I'm sure anyone from the Bimini Lab would tell you they work with lemon sharks more than I do. But the, <laughs> one of the funniest things was lemon sharks, they would create a bite paddle so you wrap a wooden oar in a towel and duct tape. And I hope I'm not feeling like your next, you know, Bimini person's uh, thunder Oh, you're here. good. Continue fun... on. <laughs> <laughs> but you take a, yeah, a wooden oar, wrap it in a towel, and then wrap it in duct tape. And lemon sharks are quite snappy. So when you are, when you catch them and bring them alongside the boat to, you know, work them up, it's good to keep their, the bitey end occupied. So you'd offer this bite paddle and they almost like a, I wouldn't say a pacifier, but kind of, you sort of just put it right in front of their nose and they'll snap and bite onto it and they kind of hold on to it. So at least, you know, that the really bitey end is occupied. So you usually have somebody just sort of watching that and then you can go about your business. So that, that was pretty like a, and then I, so I switched from that to being in the water with them. And I was like, oh, this is completely different. They have Zero spatial awareness. They are all over you. They they don't care. They'll swim between your legs. They'll and watching the general public deal with this can be pretty amusing at times. But just they have this like bold sort of they don't really care attitude, which I you know I think I appreciate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so in, in a way, just seeing them from different angles and then meeting anglers who really don't like them because of the, because they're so snappy is, is like a whole other, you know, they, divers love them. Anglers don't seem to like them very much for for very good reasons. But yeah, I think just seeing their personalities kind of come out and like seeing them in different circumstances was really, it was cool to see because it reminds you that these are dynamic animals that, you know are, have been around for millions of years and, and, you know, they may have a little bit of personality and, um, it's pretty cool to see it in those different perspectives.
0: That is so interesting. So I, I mean, I'm pretty familiar with, with Bimini. I've done my study abroad there and have interviewed a few people that have either been there or worked within like collaborations as well. And I've never heard anyone talk about that. no. No. Which is crazy. Like I was even there. and I didn't even see that
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I don't think they get a lot of they handle a lot of adults over there, whereas on the Jupiter side, we ended up handling mostly I mean obviously all adults so I thought of lemon sharks as these big snappy animals and then when I went over to Bimini and I was like oh my gosh they're actually super cute and like running through the mangroves and stuff like it's a it feels like a totally different animal so maybe that's why
0: maybe yeah now I'm thinking about it definitely worked with more juvenile than adult but still I mean it's really cool to see how much like they change as they grow into adult lemon sharks yeah (laughs)
1: absolutely yeah it's it's really yeah it's been interesting And um I would say also with the hammerheads you know just the idea that there we as a researcher and knowing them from the science side and then having like a lot of my peers in the world they're just considered considered these big apex predators and even the anglers themselves are just like they're it's a prize it's they really do respect them for their size and power Mm -hmm. but at the same time knowing that physiologically they stress out really easily so it's kind of like a it's a bit of a conundrum because they kind of have this you know outside perspective of being like you know really tough and these apex predators and you know super successful but really we're finding like they're kind of like that kid in school that just couldn't handle tests you know like just stressed out too much so um, I think that's been really interesting to kind of put put that into you know into my overall picture of that animal
0: so as you've been a scientist now for many years and you have been able to again go through different types of studies if it was in your work in South Africa or even what continuing in Florida do you have your like a favorite discovery or like aha moment so far um yeah that's a
1: really good question I would, I would say I, I just overall, this kind of is off the like discovery kind of idea, but the fact that we are an independent nonprofit that can contribute data to a federal stock assessment, that doesn't sound really like that jazzy. But honestly, it's something that like, if you would have asked me, you know, six or seven years ago, or when I finished my master's and was like, do I do my PhD? I'm not sure what to do next. Um, had a lot, I had a lot of questions, um, about what I should be doing. I never would have thought that I'd be able to have like, you know, you know, been the founder of an organization and then have you know, gotten to do some work that was really going to go directly to policy. That to me has been kind of, there was a moment this, you know, I was on one of the webinars for the stock assessment and I thought, okay, this is kind of cool. This is, (laughs) this is, this is, this is actually what I really wanted to be doing. So there's a lot of doubt for, for many years. And then I kind of took that moment to be like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. Okay. This is, this is good.
0: Yeah, no, and it's like you said, to have a nonprofit be able to work toward those regulations on a federal level is just incredible, and being able, I mean, that's a really great feat, I think it's to pat yourself and your team on the back for that, because like you said, I mean, for maybe the, no- the normal person that's not involved in science, that might not sound like anything like to brag about, but it definitely is. <laughs> it was, yeah, we've gotten a lot of
1: questions of like, yeah, but who do you work with? And we're like, no, it's us, like we, we it's us, we work for ourselves. Uh, we, Of course we collaborate with a ton of people and we've been advised by, you know, amazing scientists in lots of different institutions, but, you know, it was just, oh, but what university are you associated with? We're like, no, we're independent. And I think it's just to be able to kind of put some of the. That doubt to rest. That some, you know, an organization like ours can can be really, really impactful. I was like, okay, this this feels good. I think I we made some good decisions along the, along the way.
0: <laughs> I love that. So my last question then for you is to to wrap up the interview. Is what advice would you give to your younger self?
1: Um, yeah, that is, again, also a really good question. I I have the great opportunity to mentor some undergrads and early career scientists and girls going into grad school. And they would probably say the thing I harp on the most is just to realize everybody is like nobody's perfect. And I think we hear that a lot in today's society. We're bombarded by these pictures of perfection and All this confidence on social media, but even at my age, I will say like I it's I don't know exactly how to run the software on every satellite tag. (laughs) It's okay, like there's you know, it's not everybody knows exactly what's going on and to not be so hard on yourself and ask the questions. And I just I think I thought of all of the supervisors and people so much further in their careers just having it totally figured out. And I think I try to harp on the girls all the time that, you know, it's, they don't, they don't know everything. Everyone has questions and everyone started where you started. So just not be afraid to, to ask questions and, you know, just be, be brave and, and talk about the things that you want to do. So that's, that seems to be what I sort of harp on all the time.
0: Well, I think those are really great things to harp on though. It's really great advice to be giving. <laughs> So before I do let you go, Hannah, um, is there any social media that people can follow you or the American Shark Conservancy at to keep up with your work? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So our Facebook, American Shark Conservancy, I mean, honestly, if you just put that into the search bar on any of the platforms, the girls say they did set me set ASC up on TikTok. I don't know.
0: Ooh. I, yeah,
1: sure. <laughs> I don't know how to log into it. I don't know anything about it. So apparently they're doing fun videos on there. Um, like okay. we're, on, we're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. It's American Shark Conservancy, or um, I think Twitter is Shark Studies. And Instagram is ASC underscore shark studies. So yeah, we're pretty active on there. We try to share updates and fun facts and all those things and ways people can get involved. So um, yeah, we'd love to have you follow and join and, um, you know, keep everyone updated on the good stuff we're doing.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you, Hannah, for having um, be on the podcast and being able for all of us um, to be able to learn more about you and, and the work that you and the American Shark Conservancy is doing.
1: No, my pleasure. Like I said, I really appreciate these opportunities. We love the Guilds Club and yeah, we're really grateful for the opportunity.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.